0: Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, community. Ooh, good morning. Really glad that you're joining us here this morning. Happy Advent to all of you and Merry Christmas. And again, a huge hello to the many of you watching and listening online who belong to C4 or don't. We're glad you're joining us here today. Well, uh, we're still in our series. Uh, Actually, this will be the last week we're in our series for a bit before we break for Christmas. In this series, Romans, Back to Basics. So if you have a Bible, please, I'd love you to turn to Romans chapter 6 and we'll begin there. I I don't know if this is your experience or not, but uh, have you ever been in a situation where you go into a situation to have a conversation or a talk? And what you think is going to come out of it and then what happens is very different. Something very unexpected takes place, and you weren't prepared for that. That happened to me in the last few weeks. I was doing my daily, uh, my weekly, uh, my weekly daily, my yearly physical. Oh my goodness! And I was hanging out with my GP, as as we all do and love, not really. And I just said to him, "You know, something very bizarre. I'm noticing. I'm a young dad, and I have had this cough my whole life." a violent, violent cough. When I first got married, Joanna was ready to dial 911. Like, she thought I was dying. And I was like, no, no, this is just normal. I've had this since my childhood. Well, she bugged me for 10 years about it, and I ignored the conversation. But then it's been interesting. The last three years, I've noticed something. My three-year-old and my one-and-a-half-year-old cough exactly the way I do. Death is coming into our home, it sounds like. And so I said to my GP, hey, this is really weird. Is there genetics involved here? Like, I don't." Know. He says, I don't know. I have, I have this other friend, this other doctor. Why don't you go talk to him? So I went, and I was going to talk about a cough. And so I show up at this doctor's office. I've got it booked for about 25 minutes or so. I go, and I sit with him. He's a very kind, direct man, asks me all these questions, and I'm answering, and he smiles at me. He says, oh, I know what your problem is. Oh, great, tell me, which one? And he said, uh, you have allergies. I said, no, no. No, I don't have allergies. I've lived on three continents. I've no, no, no. I do not have allergies. Oh yes. So he says, just go in this other room. This nurse is going to help you. I have no clue what's about to take place. So this nurse comes and she sits and smiles. Now some of you know what I'm going to experience, right? She's sitting there and she's wonderful. She's smiling. She, she can I have your arms, please? I'm like, sure. This is what's going on. She's like, okay, and she starts marking me like tattoos. I'm like, wow, this is very exciting. I have no clue. And she's like, yeah, okay, knife. C-c-c-c-c-c-c- 47 marks, and she smiles. The whole Like, I think there's perversity in this, personally. <laughs> and I have no clue. And then she starts putting all this stuff on, and I, I, again, cannot believe. This is supposed to be about a cough. This is what I keep thinking in my mind. It's 47 marks later. Some of you have been through this. They used to do it on your back. Now it's on your arms. And she smiled and said, wait 10 minutes, and if it really itches, we'll know. Thanks. And now she goes. Well, my arms light up. And she comes back, she goes, mm, mm, yeah. Yeah, that didn't work so well for us. We're going to have to give you 10 needles right now. Whoa. I said, excuse me, yeah, 10 needles right now. So she starts giving them to me. I hate needles. I'm looking away. These are unbelievably painful needles. And I say to her, you know, can you just hold on for a second between the dog and the grass or whatever you're doing? Um, this is unbelievably painful. She says, yeah, honey, I, I know. These are different needles. See, the, the liquid doesn't go in the muscle. It goes between the muscle and skin and forces your skin out thanks. And she's smiling. Yeah. So anyways, I go back into the doctor. This is now two and a half hours into my 30-minute conversation. He smiles and says, yes, you're highly allergic to everything. I said, can I become bubble boy? Like, how bad is this? He says, grass, dogs, cats, creation, on and on and on. It sort of went. And he said, oh, and it's obvious probably your children have this too. Now, I just sat back and I thought about this, um, Because I went, that was not the conversation I was intending to have. I was just going to talk about a a bizarre cold that I thought was genetic. And when I finally got there, it was painful, it was uncomfortable, though she smiled the whole time. But here's what I learned. My life now will be different because I have truth about my condition. And now I have truth about my condition. I can begin to live and speak into that in a way I never have in my whole life. And as a dad, I can do that too. And as I was reflecting on this passage this week, and Wayne set it up so beautifully last week, this is one of these passages that is just so beautiful, so powerful. I realized it's sort of the same experience. Today's passage is painful. but Today's passage is truthful. Today's passage is in your faith. But after we sort of move through the pain and struggle through the truth, we can live in a different way. And that is exactly Paul's point in this passage. And so in Romans 6... We're going to experience some stuff today, especially as people who think as North Americans that radically challenges what we think is right. But if we can go through the pain and embrace this truth, and here's the difference. We can hear truth all you want from a pulpit, but if we embrace this truth, and this is for both Christians and those who are not, then we can see life very differently. It's not just a vain pastoral promise. I'm saying this with authority this morning. Romans chapter 6, the second half, Paul continues this amazing theme that all Christians, listen to this, are actually free from the power of sin. As Wayne said last week, we get to say no, N-O, to sin by who we know and when we know what he's done for us. And more specifically, that we know what he's doing in us right now. Paul, in this second half of chapter 6, chooses to deal with this theme, though, in a new way. He uses an image that's very painful. Actually, most of us will not like it if we really reflect on it, but it is the right painful image to drive home the point. It's the place where they put the 10 shots in. Paul is about to declare to all of us, no matter who you are, gender, background, no matter where you even are in the spiritual journey, this statement. All of us are involved in slavery. Every person sitting here right now, you watching and listening online, all of us, are slaves. You're sitting beside a slave at this very moment. Now the truth is we're all slaves to something or many things. It could be work, job, possession. It could be the sexual adventure, busyness, achievement, education. It could be the temporal stuff of life. It was H.L. Hunt, the billionaire oil tycoon, who, who was credited with this statement, who got it so right when he talked about the slavery of money, when he just simply uttered these words, money, he said, is really just a way of keeping Score. See, that's slavery. There's no freedom in that. Yet, beyond all those ugly, life draining masters, many more people sitting here right now are actually slaves to other people or relationships. You become a slave to a person, a family, a friend, because you actually believe that that person or community will fulfill every single need you have within yourself. And you deceive yourself and believe magically they will morph into the person that will deal with all the needs we have. And yet, truthfully, the greatest God is the God of self. Chuck Swindoll summarized this so well when he said, Perhaps the most pathetic and increasingly common form of slavery are those who are actually enslaved to the God of self. Psychologists call it narcissism. They're narcissists. It actually comes from the name of a Roman a mythology figure who fell in love with his own reflection in a stream. When he tried to kiss the object of his love, his lips thus disturbed the water, and the image, well, it would run away, and it left him heartbroken. He dare not drink again from that stream, fear of losing his lover forever, and eventually, the story goes, that slave of self-love died of thirst. Thirst. See, narcissists serve themselves, even when it appears they are actually being selfless and serving many others. They are relentless in their demand of time and attention and admiration and devotion and nurturing of others, but really, in the end, it actually is about them. But this, like all forms of slavery, only will lead to greater emptiness. We all serve someone. It's just a matter, of course, of what. And it is the what we are serving Paul spends all his time dealing with today. And so this is how he begins the conversation with us this morning. Romans 6:15. It's the middle break, and we begin there. What then, Paul says? What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but now we're under grace? Paul begins with dealing, dealing with the possibility of Christians going on the deep end of the truth that Jesus has given them the good news, and this grace thing is now there, now theirs. It's actually how he starts chapter six. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace could increase? See Paul, when he started talking about grace, his critics immediately said this. They said, okay, you're a hypocrite. Out of one side of your mouth, Paul, you're talking about us being holy. On the other side, because of this grace thing, you're saying, don't worry about it. Sin and sin and sin some more. Don't worry, you're covered by grace. What will a little difference make, a little sin? You know, I'm covered, right? It's thoughts like, well, I know it's wrong. I'm a child of God. Look, he'll forgive me. I'm under grace. But Paul at this moment, even before he gets to slavery, will respond very strongly against any form of being okay with sin and using God as a credit card. Remember, Paul had a crystal clear understanding about sin. It's not to be touched, embraced, loved, played, or ever kissed. Our lives are not to be marked with the mentality of how close can we get to the fire without being burned. Scripture is clear. Sin is devastating. Sin is debilitating. Sin is degenerating. It is corrupting. It is pollution to our soul. It is what corrosive acid actually is to metal. It is smog in the sky. The Bible says sin is an impure thing. It is like venom that actually kills. It is rebellious. It is willful ignorance of God and his will. It actually is the act of stamping on God's word and smiling. That's what sin is. Sin is ungrateful. Sin will never say that God is God and we are not. Sin will always declare that God is not the giver of good gifts, but we are. We as sinful humanity will always indulge in God's creation, but we will not, through word or deed, credit God, let alone live a life that is thankful to him. As we found out from Romans 1, 5-5, sin is overpowering. It dominates our thinking, our affections, and our will. Sin actually works alongside and with Satan to enslave humanity. We are owned. We are not free, the Bible says, from death, Satan, or sin. We're actually slaves to them. Sin, he says, is incurable. There's nothing that can break the power of sin. Sin, remember, promises life, promises satisfaction, but it only brings misery, frustration, hopelessness, and death. Sin alienates us from ourselves, others, and God. It separates us, and in the long term, if not dealt with by Jesus, it leads to one thing, eternal death. As one sin, sin is terrible, It is life-wrecking. It is a soul-damning reality that resides and grows in every unredeemed heart like an incurable cancer. Whenever people try to escape from sin, they cannot. And when they try to escape from the guilt of sin, they cannot. The greatest gift God could give humanity in its fallen state is freedom from sin. And that very gift is, of course, what Christmas is about. Jesus, his son. And it's so with all that background... When Paul hears the accusation that he's saying that grace just gives you permission, he says these simple words, By no means. No. No. A thousand times no, he says. Grace not only justifies, not only adopts, not only makes us holy, not only redeems us, but it is called to transform us in this life. Simply put, hear this. Freedom for a Christian is not freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin. Twitter that, please, somebody. Seriously, Christianity and Christian freedom is not freedom to sin, it's freedom from sin. And then it's at this moment that Paul pulls out the language that, again, is so uncomfortable to us. This is where he starts using slavery language, which of course would get every Roman citizen's attention hearing this for the first time in that church. Remember, the church in Rome was located at the heart of the slave experience. One-third to one-half of the Roman population was a slave. Almost all the politicians at one point wanted slaves to to dress in specific clothing. They wanted to distinguish those who were owned by those who were not. But then when the slave population began to grow astronomically, they decided not to do it because they dare not want the slave population to know how many they were, look at each other, and then revolt. One wrote it this way, the ancient Romans actually were well known for their slavery. And by the way, most of us don't know, I didn't, it took two forms. The more familiar kind of slavery is the one where you get captured as an enemy. Then the Romans would destroy anything that might tempt you to go home and then transport you back to Rome and sell you on an auction block. It's very much like what we saw and we've learned about in the African-American experience in the South and also what was done in England. But there's another type of slavery, an older form of slavery. It was called voluntary slavery. Impoverished people could offer themselves as slaves to someone in order to have food to eat and a place to live. In other words, people became willing slaves to meet their basic needs. And it's with those two types of slavery in mind that Paul begins to write Romans 6. And this is what he says in these next words. And you'll catch it now. Verse 16. Don't you know that when you, ready, offer yourself to someone as an obedient slave you are a slave of the one you obey. Offer yourself means a willing choice of obedience. It's an ongoing presenting of oneself to someone or something. See, there's two hallmarks of slavery. It's obvious. You're owned by another and you obey. You're owned by another and you obey. You know this, Paul is saying to this community. Many of you hearing this for the first time are slaves and many of you in the church own slaves. This is sort of like the duh moment for his community. But then Paul turns the conversation around and is about to declare to that church and to us, but by the way, everyone, you're all slaves. Everyone on earth is a slave and is bound to total obedience to the master, the one that they present themselves to. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, hear this this morning. You are owned by Jesus. We are slaves to Jesus. And we have two choices. We can walk in the new life given, or we can dabble with our old master. And over time, we will truly know who we really serve. It was that great commentator, Matthew Henry, hundreds of years ago, who said it so, so simply. If we would want to know to which of the two families we belong, we must inquire to which of the two masters we yield ourselves in obedience. Paul, speaking to this church community, charges them and calls them to remember that they are now slaves of Jesus and they cannot and must not go back. They have been redeemed from one person already and been given over to slavery to another. That's why he says in verse 16, hear these words today. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as an obedient slave, you're a slave of the one you obey. Now, whether you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. I want you to say this out loud. I am a slave. Yet yeah, you, see, you see how quiet you said that as North Americans? No, say it. I am a slave. Am a slave. Now, if you're on the go train right now, say it quieter. <laughs> or in an airplane. But you need to understand that. We are slaves. Now, if you're a Christian, our slavery is to Jesus. And it's not just a legal thing. It's an ongoing experience. And Paul has just said, there is, hear this, no possibility of neutrality. There is no no man's land, no fence, no co-ownership. Either you're a slave to sin or a slave to Jesus. A slave to friendship with God or alienation. It's life or death, no one between. Paul again, of course, offends our modern notion of freedom and rights. By verse, first stating in, in verse 16 that the whole human family are slaves to sin, which leads to death. Yet what's so amazing, and some of you will remember this in your former life, the majority of people who think that they are not slaves actually think they're free, though they're not. They think that they're in control, that they're the masters of their universe, their own destiny. John Calvin said it so beautifully when he said, the greater the mass of vices anyone is buried under, the more fiercely and bombastically will he extol his own freedom." The world cries out all the time, I am free, and they're covered in chains. The modern idea of freedom, that is autonomous self-direction, does not exist in the universe. I'm sorry, you can choose a Big Mac or Harvey's, but when it becomes salvation, there is no freedom. No wonder the Bible calls us blind and dead to the things of God and God himself. As we've learned in Romans 1 through 6, if you're under sin, it leads to death. And all of humanity is under sin. Like I shared two weeks ago, death happens and has happened in three ways. The first idea and experience of death is its separation. Separation from God. It's relational death. The second one is physical death, which leads to separation from you and yourself and other human beings. And the third is the worst form. It's eternal death. See, sin's entrance is that primeval event which produced death, in the end leaves us all with the pain of affliction and the pain of loss. Supreme unhappiness. Listen, death truly is the worst of all evils. But then there are those who are owned by Jesus. Those that are slaves to obedience, which will result in life. Righteousness. And Paul, by the way, is not saying to Christians, we ought to be slaves to righteousness. He's saying, by the way, you are one. You can be nothing else. See, this is the grand paradox the world will never understand without God's intervention. Real freedom is slavery to God. Real freedom is slavery to God. Freedom from the power of sin means servitude to a new, more gentle power. Now before some of you, even as Christians, tune me out or cry out in your heart, that's not fair. I grew up in a Christian home for three generations. I didn't get my fling. Or before some of you say, that's just so boring or so constraining. Or don't you understand, God just doesn't want me to be happy. Remember, Holiness is what you are actually made to be. As one twittered this week, how little people know who think holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. Thank you, C.S. Lewis. See, that's the truth. When you meet genuine, life giving holiness, it is attractive because it is light in darkness. Paul, continuing, reminds us as Christians, in the strongest of terms, what we are as Christians. Verse 17. But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have now come to obey from your hearts the pattern of teaching that has now claimed, I love this word, your allegiance. Paul does not praise them, notice this, or even thank them for their own wisdom or intelligence or morality or spirituality. None of these things bring or invoke salvation. See, he says thanks be to who? God. Salvation's a God thing, everybody. It's from Him. It's about Him. It's in Him. It's through Him. It's all about Him. We just get to be the beneficiaries. Jesus said it best in John 6, 44. No one, he wrote, or John wrote, could come to me unless the Father, So no one, who come, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. Paul says to any of us as Christians, whether you're a day old, a month old, years or decades, you used to be slaves to sin. But that ongoing living state was broken when God moved in and gave us the ability to see, to comprehend. When God even gave us the faith, and then and only then did we obey from our heart the teaching, which has now claimed your allegiance. There's not one of us sitting here or standing here today that actually knows all of God's truth. There's something implied here that's important. When there is a desire in us to obey and know God's truth, that is one of the strongest signs you really are a Christian. This teaching, by the way, that Paul's referring to is the apostolic teaching. It's what we now find in the New Testament. Paul was saying, and notice this, that there's a pattern thing going on. And this is important in this verse because Paul says, You've been delivered over to the word of God. And he uses the word pattern. Now, I learned this. Pattern is where we get the idea of molds from. In ancient times, and it's the same today, when you get really hot metal, they pour them into molds. And what Paul is saying in this verse is, we have been given over to Jesus and been given over to his word, and he is patterning patterning us into the image of Jesus. But the implication is this, and don't miss it. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. When you were given over to Jesus, he not only became Lord, so did his written word. We are under Jesus, and we are under his word. Listen, we can have opinions, but if they violate the word of God, we are slaves to that. It is not a slave to us. Amen? This is huge. Because so many churches say, just take Jesus as Savior, and they don't tell them the full deal. Paul comes to us and says, we have been given over. And then he says in verse 18, one of these most profound verses that is so said and hardly believed by most of us. 18, you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves to righteousness. Sin no longer is your master. In Eden, Adam and Eve had choice. After the fall, they did not have choice. It was gone. But when Jesus moved back in, when sin was removed and no longer was our master, choice is now given to us again. We are free from sin. Now now listen very carefully, though. What we've been taught freedom is and what it actually is is different. And this misunderstanding has brought many of us down in our faith. You're saying, well, John, I'm not free from sin. I still struggle all the time. Either I'm not a Christian or I'm a terrible one. But here's the point that Paul's trying to say. Before Jesus, you didn't have an ability to say yes to God at all. You had to sin. But now you do not have to sin. As one said, it's possible for Christians to sin. But they no longer are bound to sin. They, they are free not to sin. And they should exercise the divinely provided ability in obedience to their new Lord and their new Master. Here's the point. Jesus actually lives in you. It's not conceptual. It's truth. It's there. His Spirit really lives in you. If you call upon Jesus for power to live a life of righteousness, you can and you will. The truth is, though, most of us, when we're about to fall, In a knowing way, do not stop out loud and say, I am a slave of Christ. Holy Spirit, help me say no. When's the last time you've done that? You're about to hit the buffet line for the fifth time. It's called gluttony. It is. And you say, I am a slave of Christ. And the whole restaurant looks. Or you're about to turn on the internet and you know it's... Do you stop and say, I am a slave? Spirit of God, give me superpower to say no. No. Because this is what he's saying. That this is not just some dead religion or a set of rules. He's saying we are being patterned and there's a living resurrection power in us. But if we do not start with the idea that we are slaves, we end up with us. And we always fall. Paul keeps going and he says, look, verse 19. I'm using this example for everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity or ever-increasing wickedness. He said, look, in the old days you used to give yourself over and over again to inward and outward sin, which by the way, we all know when you give in once, then twice, then five, then ten times, it becomes ever increasing and ever more wicked. But Paul says, hey everyone, that's not us anymore. We're slaves to Jesus. So that's why he says in the same verse, now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. Now catch this, you already are a slave, but you're also commanded to reoffer yourself all the time. This is an all-powerful call to commitment. It is a call to slavery, a call to total obligation, total commitment, total accountability. One could call this profound slavery. This is a call for us to actually live a real Christian life. Just as sin leads to further and further sin, a life of righteousness leads to more holy living. It was a great famous preacher, some of you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, who I think preached through Romans for like five years, so for any of who's complaining for this extent, no problem, go listen to him. He preached on this, and, and he said these words, as you go on living this new righteous life and practicing it with all your might and energy, I would say the Spirit's might and energy, and all the time you will find that the process that went on before, in which you used to go from bad to worse, becoming viler and viler, is actually reversed. You will become cleaner and cleaner, purer and purer, holier and holier, more and more confirmed and conformed into the image of the Son of God. Maybe I'll put it this way. Spiritual slavery is like a pair of twin sisters. One of them brings death, and one of them brings life. One of them is what was and should have been, and one of them was what was lost and what should never have been. One's going to last, and one's going to fade. And as Paul comes to the end of his thoughts, he just, he, one last time, takes time to remind us of what we were and what we now are. Because as Wayne, again, brought home so strongly last week, once we know not only what has been done for us, but what's being done in us, we will be able to say No. That's why Paul says in verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Now, everyone, important verse. Oh, if the whole church in North America would hear this. When we were not Christians, Paul says, we had no connection to God, and His will and His righteousness made no demands on us. Because we did not have the desire or ability to meet the demands. We were deaf and incapable of being in a relationship with Him. And the reality of this is seen in everyday life. Why do Christians spend all their time and energy and billions of dollars trying to make non Christians obey Jesus? Have you thought about it? Why? This says they'll never obey. You spend your whole life arguing over marriage and your whole life arguing over don't swear in public and don't take my master's name in vain and the list goes on and we actually put the demands of our slavery on people who are owned by someone else and we get angry with them and say, why are you acting this way? (laughs) And then we come to this and Paul goes, before God intervened in grace and set you free, you weren't under the control of righteousness. Don't expect a pagan world to look like us and don't waste your time trying to make a pagan world look like us. Do you know why? Because it's not real. Wouldn't it be better if we spent all our money maybe helping the poor or doing some evangelism? Just a side note. Just, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. So we come here and he says we were deaf and incapable of being in relationship with him and now this is seen in everyday life. The world prides itself on this so-called freedom, but really it becomes some human. We become unalive. And one of the saddest things is humanity worships themselves as God and they think they're free. Put it this way, if you're not a slave to Jesus, well you're just left with you. And if you're left with you, you're also left with the things that enslave you and the stuff that you love, which leads to death. And he says, how's that working for you? (laughs) And then Paul gives us this very needed reality check. See, any one of you who is a Christian today flirting with the idea of going back, or you are on your way going back, hear this verse very strongly today. What benefit, Paul wrote, did you reap at the time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. Don't deceive yourself, Christian. If you think going back the habits you've been saved from will bring you life. You're ignorant. It will bring death and will bring only shame. Any one of us that has the courage to talk about our past or our present sinful struggles will admit that not, not only are we covered by grace and not only are sin, our know, sins bad, the truth is they are shameful. I used to say this in youth group all the time. Can you imagine if God decided to show the youth group what you thought about on a big screen? And everyone went, no. Why? It's shame. One of the hallmarks of true salvation, someone wrote, is a sense of being ashamed of our, one, our life before Jesus. Whether the previous life was marked by sordid immorality or, or great kindness, by heinous crimes or sacrificial giving to others, by extreme selfishness or extreme generosity, it is actually a life a true believer can be nothing but ashamed of. Why? Why? Because no matter how it appears before God, none of it dealt with our sin. Like we found out so difficult, this is again, this is the test. Even the most holy people on earth will never connect with God by what they do. And that is why the gospel is so offensive because it comes to the person who is the most vile murderer and comes to the most religious person and says, by the way, same camp. And the world says, no. And we say, oh. Oh yes, because both things rebel against God just in different ways. Paul ends by saying these words, but now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. And the benefit you reap leads to holiness and that results in eternal life. You are free from sin You no longer are enslaved to sin. You are no longer helpless. You can say no to sin because its ownership has been removed over you, and God's Spirit lives in you and brings resurrection power to the situation. You're a slave to God. And then Paul writes one of these verses that's been memorized by billions of people. And it basically summarizes all of chapter 6. It's really the climax. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I never noticed this till this week. Did you notice that spiritual death is earned wages? I never caught it. You pay and you pay for what you do. It's just a right justful compensation for a life characterized by sin, which is every life apart from God. But the good news is eternal life is given salvation can never be earned that's why God has to interfere in our lives that's why Paul wrote to another community in Ephesians it is by grace you've been saved through faith it's not from yourselves it's a gift of God not by work so no one can boast see the great climax of chapter six is really saying really it's the Christmas story's implications Jesus is the only way to deal deal with sin He's the only one who brings us into the right relationship. He moves us from estrangement to friendship, from bondage to freedom, from eternal death to eternal life. So here's what I would like to do today. Let me challenge all of us as a community and all of us watching. For you who have not met Jesus yet, here or watching or listening, I ask you this simple question. What do you want to be enslaved by in this life and the life to come? What do you really want to be owned by? Because by the way, if you've just had the experience like I did last week at the doctors, welcome. What do you want to be ruled by for the rest of your life? What master? Sin or Jesus? You or God? And what results do you want? Death or life? See, one you pay for now and you pay forever. The other is a gift that gives you life now and gives you eternal life forever. The point is this. Whether you believe it, want it, or know it, the truth is, if you have not embraced Jesus, you are a slave to sin. And God at this moment comes to you and says, Not just you have allergies, He says, You didn't even know you were in slavery. And now the question is, What slavery do you want to be involved in? Because one brings freedom and one doesn't. Many of us sitting here have. Realized that only by God's help and have embraced that. But I give this opportunity genuinely. And if you're a Christian here, pray at this moment. If you are a person who suddenly realized at this very moment that you are separated from God and you are a slave to sin and you may have been the best person your whole life, religious or completely the opposite, and you're like, I don't want to be a slave to all that anymore. I need Jesus. Pray this. And, and friends, this is not when you tune out. This is when you need to pray diligently. There's stuff going on at this moment. So if this is you, pray. Let's all bow our heads and pray this. So just pray this. Jesus, I'm a slave to sin. I'm a slave to sin. And I want to be a slave to Jesus. So you got to come help, help me. I, I, I turn from that other life, and I pray you replace that old master, me and sin and all that other stuff, with Jesus. I believe he died, rose, I want want you to run my life because you're love, and that's not. Save me from my sin. Give me freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that, tell someone, because you've moved from one kingdom to another, and your life is radically about to change. Many of us sitting here today have made that change, and I really wrestled this week what to share with you But I think I'm just gonna be obvious, but I'd like you to really hear it, please, today. I need to declare to you, as one of your pastors, you're a slave to Jesus. Hear this, accept this, embrace this. You, as a Christian, are a slave to Jesus. You don't own your money, you don't own your home, you don't own your family, you don't own your future, you don't own your job, you don't even own your reputation. How dare any of us live a life that would not reflect the slavery of Jesus. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And we think that we own something? We need to understand that we are not our own. Paul says it in another place. We've been bought with a high price. Obedience is the key to liberation. True freedom comes from our slavery. It was the great church father Irenaeus who wrote, the glory of God is a person fully alive. C.K. Chesterton said it well, obedience is the other side of the creative will. In other words, obedience in a Christian life looses creative power, and God will use someone who is genuinely obedient We need to know who Jesus is and need to know what he's done, but we need to know what he's doing now. But we will only know that when we live our life with one consuming perspective. I am a slave of Jesus. If I do choose not to live with this perspective, God's love and ownership in my life, we will live lives that are not radical, that they are safe, they will not be authentic, they will actually be powerless Christian lives, a cheap version of our faith. It was the noted German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer Murdered by the Nazis for resisting, who wrote a book many of us have written, read called The Cost of Discipleship, where he talked about Christianity that was not slavery mentality. He called it cheap grace. Hear this. Cheap grace amounts to justification of sin without the justification of a repentant sinner who departs from sin and with whom sin departs. Cheap grace is not a kind of forgiveness of sin, which frees us, from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. It's grace without Jesus. But costly grace is a call to Jesus where the disciples left their nets when Martin Luther spoke of this grace, he implied that it cost him his own life, that his life was now completely subjugated to the absolute obedience to Jesus. Happy are those, he wrote, who knowing that grace can live in the world but not be part of the world, who following Jesus are so assured of their heavenly citizenship that they are truly free to live their lives in this world. The prayer I have been asking this church to pray, I think since last April, stems from this understanding. The prayer says, God, do anything you need to do in me for your glory, my freedom, so the world can see Jesus clearly. Many of you have admitted to me you have not prayed it because you know that if you really pray it, God is going to show up and change the life you currently want, like, own, or are used to. Others of you have not prayed it because you've said you don't need it, and you're the most dangerous ones among us. Paul said it this way, when you think you're strong, be careful that you do not fall. Others of you have not prayed it because you thought I was challenging God or or daring God. But you have not been listening carefully. This is a prayer verbally declaring Romans 6. You are God and I'm your slave. Do whatever it takes. It's the Lord's prayer in modern English. Your kingdom come and your will be done in my life as you already see it in heaven. If you refuse to pray this, then it is pride, fear, or you're just disconnected from the one that you supposedly love and loves you deeply. We all need to come to the place that we see who we are and what we are not anymore. The real starting, hear this please, the real starting for a personal awakening and a corporate revival is not just a service, it's when we communally say to God, what is next? What would you have me do for you? What, what do you want me to do, Lord? I'm your slave. No matter the cost to my job or my reputation or my money or my family, Lord, I, I've been bought by you. What next, sir? What would you like me to do? What would you like me to do? You see, we need to stop resisting Jesus in Jesus' community. We need to accept his love now and live under him no matter the consequence to our current situation. As Jesus said, and hear this, He gets to make this demand on us, not just because he saves us, but because of who he is. He is a giver of freedom. Jesus, I declare to you today, is not a thug. The old master is a thug. He brings death and cruelty to everything we do and touch. But our master, Jesus, brings our heart cry. It's the one thing the world wants so badly. Rest. For the fifth time, let me read you Matthew again. Matthew 11. This is why Jesus gets to declare what he does over us. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will, you will, you will find rest for your souls. Do you notice, though, he says, Rest only comes after you take on his yoke. For some of you today, the shock has been that you were under slavery and you didn't even know. And God, through this experience, has brought the choice to you of what master you will serve. To all of us who have been claimed Jesus and put on the wedding ring of baptism, especially... Jesus comes back to us today on this day and reminds us as we begin to celebrate Christmas, the implication of Christmas is right here. Crothers Creek Community Church does not own its destiny. Not one of us who are Christians here owns our destiny. We give everything back to our new master and we can trust him because he is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And when we wrestle against our master, what we are really saying in our actions is, I'm not sure if I really trust you. Jesus loves you loves this church, has a destiny for this church, but it will never be fulfilled until this community and I as one of your pastors get serious about being a slave to Jesus. It's scary. It's 47 marks on the arm. But when we get here, suddenly the world becomes beautiful again because our master knows who we are what we've been made to be, and knows what we're called to do. And he knows us and loves us, but his yoke cannot be resisted any longer. It must be embraced. Jesus comes to some and says, choose. To all of us who are Christians, he says, I remind you with love that I own you, and you do not own yourself. And the implication is where I end with today. As Sarah comes to lead in a moment, I just want to say these words. There is a phrase in verse 23 that should give us all hope. In Christ. See, what's amazing here is actually where Wayne started last week, I will end today. To say no to sin, you must know what Jesus is doing in you. And if there's one phrase that helps us understand what Jesus is doing, it is that great phrase in Jesus. See, Paul, from this moment forward in the book of Romans, Roots are I personal identity in Jesus. That's why he said in Romans 6.11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. This is you. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. Yes, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's you. Romans eight one and 2, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. That's us. Or here's the famous one we all love. Romans 8, 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who, what? Loves us. I'm convinced that death, life, angels, demons, present, future, any power, neither height or death, anything in reality, creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is what? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we come to the position as a church, as families, as individuals, where we understand what we once were and what Jesus is trying to do in us, but we submit under it, then this identity thing becomes so clear. Because when we're rooted in our new slavery, we get to claim all the promises that we are in Jesus. And like I said a few weeks ago, if there's one thing our world is looking for, it's rest and it's hope. And our hope is found in what Jesus has done for us, what he is doing in, for us, in, for us, in our lives right now for us, and what he's going to do for us. But it's totally bound to the idea of slavery. Jesus comes on this December morn and says to us, I love you, but this must be dealt with, for freedom is found in my yoke and no other. So here's how we're going to respond as Christians. I'd like you to get in a position of prayer whatever that means. You can stand, sit, kneel, open your arms as a sign of uh, submission, cover your face. They're all in the Bible. Before we respond with communion, I'd like you to talk to Jesus about the issue of slavery. And maybe even ask, if you dare, the Spirit of God to bring up the stuff in your life that you are terrified to talk to Jesus about Children, family, future, money, I don't know. And just say, I'm your slave. And just surrender it genuinely. And then we'll respond. So Jesus, head of this church, head of any person who is a Christian here, we first of all say our allegiance is to you. We second of all say a huge thank you for coming for us and lifting us out of darkness and death and sin. That old master, that well, that whole master. And we now ask as a community, you would help us understand and translate in our everyday life what it means to be owned by you and not ourselves. So at this moment as a church, we surrender personally our jobs, our money, our children, our reputations, our futures, our gifts, our talents, our egos, our prejudices, our sin, our likes, our dislikes, our comfortability. We just say, Lord, You are the head. What would you have us individually do and what would you have us do as a church? You are our master and we just admit it today. And I pray out of this, Lord, that there would not be a misunderstanding but a freedom. So I pray too as we now come to communion that every one of us would begin to understand afresh that because we are owned by Jesus, we now get all the promises of Jesus which means resurrection, hope, forgiveness, life, connection. So I'd ask you, Jesus, to meet us at these communion tables. You're not in these elements, but I pray you'd meet us at them. I pray you'd bless these elements, Spirit of God. And I pray that you would continue to do whatever it takes in this church, because what matters in the end is your will and your kingdom on earth, because it's all connected to eternity. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray now, and move among your people as the Father and the Son see fit. And all of God's people said, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca.